This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to Radio Astronomy, the podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can subscribe to the print edition of the magazine by visiting skyatnightmagazine.com or to our digital edition by visiting iTunes or Google Play. It's the March episode. Welcome, listeners. Uh, I'm Ian Todd, the magazine's staff writer, and I'm joined in the studio today by news editor Elizabeth Pearson. Hello. And the magazine's editor, Chris Bramley. Hello. Coming up later in this episode, we'll be talking to Antronik Sefillian from the University of Cambridge about why his latest research throws doubt on the existence of Planet Nine. Um, in the outer reaches of the solar system. But now we're going to be taking a look at what we found out while putting together the March edition of the magazine. Um, And Chris, you've been making everyone else in the office pretty jealous uh, over the past few weeks as a result of a trip to Swedish Lapland. Well, yes, um, I went to um, Swedish Lapland uh, in uh, last month in January, middle of January, um, to to go and have a look for the aurora. Uh, And uh, the good news is was uh, is that they were there? They appeared, <laughs> um, and it was a it was a fantastic uh, experience. Wasn't this like a, a designated, uh, like a, a planned um, package trip? It wasn't just you kind of going. Yes, that's right. Yeah. That's right. So it was um, it was with a group um, called Lights Over Lapland, um, who run um, organised and guided photo tours and aurora observing tours um, in 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 Lapland, so Swedish Lapland, uh, Norway and Finland as well. And uh, yeah, it turned out it turned out really well. Um, I actually got photo evidence as well of the Aurora. <laughs> so it, it was really good, um, which you'll see in the in the March issue. And um, yeah, it was it was it was quite sudden when they appeared, actually, because yeah. um, we had just got to this spot um, that the guide knew we were we were just setting up our cameras on our tripods and all of a sudden there they were so <laughs> i you know i didn't although we had been given lots of guidance beforehand about the settings and how to focus and everything like this it all happened so suddenly that um and i had like two layers of gloves on because it was so cold um, <laughs> get the gloves off focus um you know get the right iso um, you know get this set the right exposure that it just it just so I, I wasn't quite it was like the first time the first picture that we took yeah. was was of the aurora so they're a little bit blurry unfortunately when um, i was reviewing them yeah, I went out uh, to uh, several years ago now to to Iceland to go and see mm. the aurora for the first time, and 
I've been I've been Aurora hunting twice on both times. We didn't see it until the last night I was yes, there. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's so I was. <laughs> So I was always happy about that. And yeah. I remember when I was in Iceland, we would, the bus was going to the place where we were going to go and see them and we were looking out the window and you could see it amazingly outside of oh. the window. <laughs> and then as soon as we got yeah. to the place where you could actually take out and, and get the photos, yeah. um, they kind of went away. Yes. But oh. in, in some ways that was quite nice because you could just look out of the window of the bus and sort of take it in and, yes. and yeah. sort of just witness it yeah, yeah. without worrying yeah. about filling about with your camera yeah that's right yeah that's it that's how, it how do they actually yeah. how does it actually appear to you know like the naked eye when, as, you're, as you're standing there because everyone, everyone will be familiar with the uh, ridiculous you know f- images yes. of you know green and pink streaking across the sky does it actually look like that so the one that I saw in Iceland it looked like a sort of cloud that was sort of arcing across the sky basically yeah. it looked like a cloudy rainbow and then yeah. it got narrower and narrower and narrower. And then when it sort of just became this one thin band across the sky, that was when it became bright green. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it you changes. Could, yeah. It changes. Because it, 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 if, it's, if it's quite faint, because um, the, the display I saw started off quite faint and, it's, and it, you can't, your eye can't pick up colour. Yeah. Um, faint that uh, uh, with objects that faint. So it appeared like white, like a kind of misty mm. cloud. And then the reason it, it was identifiable as a as an aurora because its form was so obviously uncloud like it it started off as a ray kind of going diagonally up into the sky you know to a higher to higher altitude yeah um and and then it kind of then it kind of curved and bent and and turned into a wavy form and then another bit cool. appeared low um to the right mm-hmm. um and it's that kind of change that happens over a kind of you know over kind of Math, you know, ten seconds, twenty seconds, that kind yeah. of thing that that makes it obvious that, that that's what you're looking at. And as it gets more bright, it you see start to see the color as well. Mm. well. For, for me, the thing that was really diff, like quite shocking, was how slowly it moves. Mm. Because you see mm. all of these videos online, and they're they're um, time lapse time lapses. Yeah, yes, that's the word. Yeah. And so they they happen much faster on the actual. Like you can tell that it's moving, and you can see it moving, but it's very slow. It's very gradual. Yeah, that's right. That's right. But if if you lived in that region, could you theoretically see it every night, or is it seasonal? Or I mean, it's it's supposed to depend on the weather, isn't it? As well, if if it's cloudy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It, yeah. it happens more frequently around um, October and March. Those mm. those times of year. Yeah. Um, but it's technically you can see it any time of year. It's just that generally, if you're in um, an Arctic region where it's likely to be, um, that means you're going to have very bright summer days, yeah. and you can't see this faint yeah. coloured light on the sky if it's a bright sunny sun, bright sunny night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 It's true. It does happen, doesn't it? In um, that far north. Yeah. But one of the things I really liked about um, the feature you wrote about it. Chris, was all the other stuff that you got to do, like you, you got to stay in a hotel made of ice? Yes, the ice <laughs> hotel was a, was a, was absolutely incredible. I mean, it um, sounds ridiculously uncomfortable. Uh, well, actually, no, it was very, I mean, it was cold. It was a constant minus five in there. You, and then you get changed, in the ice hotel, you get changed in this kind of warm area, warm room. Okay. And you have a little kind of changing room in that in that part of the hotel. And then, so you get all ready, get into your, get into your kind of base layer, get your boots on, Walk out, walk over to the hotel, um, and then get into your bed, sleeping bag, sleep for the night, and then they wake you up at ten o'clock in the morning um, with some hot, some hot juice, and say, "Right, come on out, out, 
it's time to leave now and you and you have to leave because all the rooms have um ice sculptures in and it's like an art gallery during the day so guests can walk around the different mm. rooms and and look at the amazing <laughs> artworks so what do you do with your passport and travelers checks well, that's, that's why you have every, every guest in every room has a has a has a room in the warm area as well that oh, they, they can right. use as a locker or yeah. you know, storage or something like that so so it's quite a unique kind of um it's a kind of unique logistical element yeah. to the to the isotope I, I, I think it's one of those places you you only stay a night to say that you've done it it's not somewhere like you, your base of operations whilst you're exploring no. No, that's land. Right. And, and there are like there are like kind of um you can stay in warm warm rooms in the hotel as oh, well right, it's okay. not just like you can only stay in the yeah. in the ice hotel yeah. so you can have like one one night in the sleeping on in the nice bed <laughs> a normal bed for the other nights or whatever but you're also but yeah. going, you're also going on um uh what do you call it? Like when you're when you're pulled by dogs, yes, on dog sled. sledding, I mean, and, that's class. Um, snowmobiling, and cross country skiing. Um, uh, it was it was a lot. There was a there's so you know. I mean, you think it was minus twenty there. It was it was very cold at that time. It yeah. sounds knackering. You know, it was it was a lot. There was there was so much you could do out there, and it's actually uh, with the right with the right clothing, which all the, where we stayed, they all have very big rooms, you know, with loads of loads of snow suits and all the right kit. Yeah, heavy heavy snowshoes, um, you know, mittens and everything, balaclavas, <laughs> hats, everything. Um, so you actually dress you dress right, and you you don't actually notice the cold that much. Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite thrilling to be out in a in an environment like that if you've not really experienced it before. Awesome. Um, and a lot of the time, I kind of um, you know, it almost felt like I was like an astronaut, <laughs> you know, being out on this kind of on this frozen ice with nothing around, you know, in a kind of thick space in a thick kind of snowsuit. Yeah. It it was very similar to um, um, how how being an astronaut looked. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Sound the gifting panic alarm. You need to get an amazing gift. Wait, no, the perfect gift. Relax. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. It's easy. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like. And Gift Mode instantly gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Now it's simple to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. So whether you need a housewarming gift for the new homeowner or a birthday present for the pickleballer, Gift Mode has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. That actually brings us on quite nicely to uh, another um, uh, feature in this in, in the uh, March issue because uh, Ezzy's been looking at uh, the Apollo 9 mission, um, which, I, which I've been uh, reading because I was kind of fascinated because... Whenever I think of the, the the big Apollo missions, I think like most people, I probably think of Apollo eight because they went around the moon for the first time, and Apollo eleven for obvious reasons because that's when they landed on the moon. Um, but uh, Apollo nine really was the first time that they'd actually tested out what they were going to. I mean, it, 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 the, the entire mission happened in Earth orbit, so they didn't really go near the moon. But it was like all the docking procedures, and it was the first time that they did an on-orbit test of the the lunar module. Um, and it was the first time that the lunar module 
flew away yeah. from the spacecraft, which is also the, the first time that anybody's been in, and one of the only times, in fact, that people have been in space um, without a way of, in something that couldn't get back on Earth. Yeah. If the lunar module attempted re-entry, it would not survive. Yeah. And so they, they drifted like about 150 kilometers away um, and then from had, their nearest way home, which to me sounds really intimidating. And, and then had to wow. use thrusters to... Yes, to, so they to get back. They were they were testing the the uh, ascent and descent thrusters. Yeah. So the ones that would take the Apollo Eleven onwards to the surface of the moon and then get them back off of it again. Yeah, because I think it's worth pointing out. Maybe people aren't kind of um, au fait with the different aspects of the Apollo missions. Once mm. they'd actually launched on the the Saturn V, there were then like three different um, modules. So there was like the uh, the command module, which is where mm. the astronauts lived. And, and and slept and, and ate and worked. But then they would have to then dock with the lunar module. Yes. And then stay there for a day or two. Yes. And then the lunar module would separate and carry two astronauts down to the moon while the command module pilot... Just went in orbit around. Went in orbit around the Earth. Yeah. And Apollo 11, that was Ramon. Michael Collins. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was basically test, testing all that stuff out, wasn't it? Mm. Uh, yeah, it was. It was testing a lot of procedures. And in fact, the, the commander, James McDivitt, who was one of the two astronauts who went in the lunar module, um, ended up as the sort of overmanager of the Apollo program. Um, and he was the overmanager during Apollo 13. Ah, and wow. so he said apparently that was really useful because in Apollo 13, they had to um, use the, the lunar module as a lifeboat. And so he'd done half of the, emer- he himself had trialed a bunch of the emergency procedures that Apollo 13 needed to use. And he could mm. sort of talk them through it. And he found that really useful. Mm. That's really useful, isn't it? Because these kind of less glamorous missions, they might look a little bit, you know, less boring. But actually, there, you, you, when you know, events like Apollo thirteen show that it's essential to do those kind of, yeah, those kind of those kind of mock-ups to, for you know, because you never know what's going to happen. Do you? It's exactly. one of the reasons why I've really liked writing and looking up these features is because you get to learn about the Apollo missions that nobody ever talks about. Mm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So Apollo seven and Apollo nine and yeah. Apollo ten and these ones that they they were hugely important and they did mm. really impressive things and there's some yeah. really interesting stories as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Associated with them all, but no one tends to hear them anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was so it was a ten day mission launched on the third of March, landed on the thirteenth of March, nineteen sixty nine, and then obviously just months later. They landed on the moon, so it was you know the 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 time scale wasn't. It was in you know, because they had Kennedy's challenge of we must land on the moon yeah. in ninety uh, sixty nine, um, and so they'd planned five missions that year in the hope yeah. that one of them would eventually get to the moon. And when when you look at that back now, it's. It, it seems ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. um, the pace, yeah. the pace. I mean, it, no, no one had ever done any of this before, had yeah. they? Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely at the cutting edge of what was technically, technologically achievable. And they were just going, they were just racing through it, weren't they? It's it's, especially if you look at sort of like the, the, the Russian missions, because they, they did have their own lunar program. They pretended they didn't for many years, but the Soviets <laughs> did yeah. have a, a crude lunar program. Um, and... They were saying that every step needed to be tested two or three times before they would take the next one and, and risk, yeah. risk human lives. Um, whereas with Apollo, it was like, yep, did that once, it worked, next step. 
Yeah. <laughs> yep, that worked. Did it once. Next step. I know because that was the thing. It seemed to be quite a lot of the uh, for the quite a lot of the Apollo era, um, and I suppose even before with the kind of since the launch of uh, Sputnik, it was like the Soviets had, had outdone the US at each yeah. stage. And even with this, it was two months before Apollo Nine. The Soviets had already done that. They'd already done man docking. Um, with their Soyuz 4, I think it was. Yeah, Soyuz it? 4 yeah. and 5, I think yes. it was. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so it was like they were constantly playing catch-up, but then the US ultimately beat them to the surface of the moon in the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the other, other interesting things about um, Apollo 9 was um, poor old Rusty Schweikart, who's my, I think my favourite named uh, Apollo. <laughs> yes. I just yeah. love saying his name. Rusty Schweikart. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he was the space sick as well, wasn't he? He was supposed to do a, a spacewalk. For, it was supposed to be two hours, but they had to reduce it down to yes. 45 minutes or something. But he was... Um, Unwell in space, to put yeah, it diplomatically. Yeah. <laughs> um, and if you're doing a spacewalk, you're in a spacesuit. You can't get to your face to to clear anything away. <laughs> um, and so it's actually quite dangerous. Yeah. Um, there's been a couple of incidents in the past couple of years where people... Yes, Luca Palm... Is it Luca the Palmitiano, the um, Italian? Yeah, his, uh, his yeah. spacesuit started filling yeah. with water. Yeah. Um, and uh, another... Uh, Chris Hadfield, he yeah. had, I think it was a CO2 leak, leak or something, right. um, which basically meant he his eyes turned acidic oh, and gosh. he couldn't oh, see and things me. like that. So they, yeah, it's, it's, like it's, mm. when you sort of see these people in their spacesuits going around on the outside of the space station, it seems quite, you know, majestic and mm. balletic. And then mm. you actually find out what it's like and you sort of hear about the, you know, the the shoes taking their toenails off and mm. Ooh, yeah. the, the apparently the the lunar astronauts um moon dust is terribly chafing when it gets <laughs> into your underwear. Goodness um, me. <laughs> and it was it was it was hard being an astronaut mm. um and particularly hard being an Apollo astronaut when you've not only got these incredibly physically demanding challenges you've got the entire you know billions of US taxpayer dollars riding on you successfully completing a mission yeah and maybe not all the yeah. te- technology and research and experience that you know astronauts on the ISS mm. currently enjoy yeah you yeah. know um but from apollo 9 to to planet 9 as yes so uh, mm. we've heard some more news about uh, a potential ninth planet uh, a lot of people have been thinking that there might be a ninth major planet, I should say, um, somewhere in our solar system for for centuries, decades. Um, people have been thinking that there is one, but uh, a beyond, couple of beyond beyond Neptune. Beyond mm. Neptune. But the best evidence for it came a couple of years ago, uh, in two thousand and sixteen when some people were looking at some things happening out in the Kuiper Belt. Ever since people have been searching to see whether or not there might be a ninth planet in our solar system. But uh, a new study has recently come out which suggests that might not be the case. So I talked to Antronix Sophilian from the University of Cambridge about why his latest research says that there might not be a ninth planet in our solar system after all. So in 2016, the proposal of, a ninth, of the existence of a ninth planet was published in an article. And the reason for believing that there should be a ninth planet in the outskirts of the solar system is that we know of almost 30 objects in the trans-Neptunian space. The trans-Neptunian space is the region in the solar system beyond the orbit of Neptune. So it's in the distant parts of the solar system. And we know of almost 30 objects out there which are showing signs of gravitational anomalies. And this would be that, specifically, these objects are kind of showing that they are clustered in one direction instead of being randomly distributed 
around the solar system in a sense. And uh, your study uh, suggests that there, there might not be a ninth planet within our solar system. So what do you think is going on instead? The problem, of course, when the Planet Nine proposal was published, we were intrigued by the idea and we were also intrigued by the observations that this Planet Nine is supposed to be explaining, mainly the, the thing which I mentioned just now, the clustering of some trans objects. And uh, this was very exciting for us, but back then it seemed for us more natural and perhaps less dramatic in a sense that instead of allowing for a Planet Nine, why not allow for lots of small objects in the trans space and see what do these small objects collectively can do? And that's the way we thought about the problem. And it turned out that indeed this, this process works. So now what we're envisioning instead of Planet Nine, we're envisioning a collection of, or, of objects, say thousands or maybe ten thousands of small objects, uh, something like Pluto or even smaller than Pluto, and these are distributed beyond the space, uh, beyond the beyond the orbit of Neptune in the transneptunian space. And you can think of it as a disk. So you can envision as the, of, of this collection of orbits as disks, as, as a one disk, which is beyond the orbit of Neptune. And it turns out that we found in our study with my collaborator Jihad Tuma at the American University of Beirut in Lebanon that these small objects, through their small but non-negligible gravitational effects, basically can do the same thing as Planet Nine does, and it can explain all the observational features that we're seeing in the outskirts of the solar system. Um, and how big would the Kuiper Belt uh, need to be in order to, to create the effects that we've seen? All right. It's not a matter of how... It's not a, it's not a, it's not a question of how big it should be, but we showed in our study that this disk that we're envisioning, which is formed of lots of small objects, should be radially extended. So the Kuiper belt starts somewhere from beyond the orbit of Neptune. Neptune is situated at 30 astronomical units, where one astronomical unit is the distance from Earth to Sun. Uh, the Kuiper belt extends from 30 to 50 astronomical units, and we do not know of lots, of, we do not know of much more objects beyond this distance of 50 AU. So in, in our study, what we're envisioning is that there should be other objects, and lots of them, beyond 58, 50 astronomical units, and maybe up until 700, 800, 900 astronomical units. And do, do you think that, that this theory is, is putting a, the final nail in the coffin of Planet Nine, or, or should we still keep looking? If one reads our paper, in our paper, we never say that there should be no Planet Nine. But what we are basically arguing for is that if there are lots of small objects out there, uh, they have some small but non-negligible gravitational effects, right? These gravitational effects usually are just, let's say, they are not taken into account, right? Because usually the way of thinking about it is that they won't do much. But what we're trying to argue in our paper is that it could be even possible that there is a another version of Planet Nine, perhaps closer to the Sun with less mass instead of the supposed 10 Earth mass Planet Nine, in combination with another version of our disk, maybe with much less number of objects in it. Mm -hmm. So it could even be possible that the combination of a, another version of Planet Nine with another version of our disk might be operating at this moment. And 
so with with sort of if there was a planet nine sort of proving that would be relatively easy you just they, they they've been doing lots of surveys to try and find it in fact is there any way that we could prove whether or not your theory is right or do we just have to go on the theory all right so yes it is it is probably it is easier to detect planet nine than the objects which constitute our disk that probably is true uh one of the reasons for that is because the or the objects which constitute our disk as we show in the in our study they should be on kind of circular paths so and because they are very distant from the sun and they are not on elliptical paths but on circular paths they will not come close to the sun enough so that we would see them so in that sense planet 9 detecting planet 9 must, might be easier yes but uh we expect that with improved observational facilities which will surely be deployed in the hunt for planet 9 will also improve statistics about small bodies roaming in the transantinian space with their mass and kinematics included. And it could even be possible that these campaigns may improve indications for a massive extended disk, just like we argue in our paper, before they even find a super-Earth planet. So the search should be continued. So regardless of, of which theory proves to be correct in the long run, it's, it's a good thing for science and it's a good thing for, for getting to know our solar system a bit better. Yes, of course, the, for the reason that I just mentioned, and uh, because it could even be possible that there is a planet nine and there is a, another version of our disk. So it might be possible that astronomers will detect, will detect planet nine through their observations, but probably it could be possible that whenever they detect planet nine and then they try to deduce the mass and the location and all the other kinematics of this supposed planet nine, and if it doesn't match with their predictions, it probably indicates that it's acting together with what we are envisioning with the transneptunian disk. So it could be a mixture of the two together. Exactly. Yes. Well, if there's one thing that, that we've learned in the past, it's that the more you look at space, the more things you've turned up and the more interesting things you find. So hopefully the search will keep turning up new things. Right. <laughs> well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Antronic. All right. Thank you so much. That was Andronek Civilian, uh, and you can find out more about the outer reaches of the solar system and the search for Planet Nine in the March issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. There's lots to see in the night sky this month, which we cover in detail in our Sky Guide in this month's issue. But if you only have one chance to get it under the night sky in March, have a look for the beautiful Beehive Cluster. This is a glittering concentration of closely packed stars. Astronomers have found there are over a thousand in total, which looks magical in a pair of binoculars. It's well placed in the early evening skies at the start of March when the moon's out of the way and the sky is nice and dark. The cluster is in the constellation of Cancer, midway between the twin bright stars of Gemini, Castor and Pollux, and the reverse question mark shape made by the stars of Leo. It'll be over the southeastern horizon, halfway up the sky to overhead by 7pm as it starts to get nice and dark. There's more tips on finding the beautiful beehive and other great night sky targets over the coming weeks in the March issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. You can discover more about the search for Planet Nine, the heroic feats of the Apollo astronauts on going on an Arctic Aurora adventure in the March issue of BBC Sky at Night magazine. And don't forget our regular sections, which help you discover the wonders of the night sky this month and find the right equipment to observe it with. From all of us here at BBC Sky at Night magazine, goodbye. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Radio Astronomy podcast from the makers of BBC Sky at Night magazine, which was produced in our Bristol studio by Jack Fletcher. For more of our podcasts, visit our website at skyatnightmagazine.com or simply head to iTunes. 